0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, I am really, really excited for you to hear this guest. His name is Tarquin Gotch. And now, let me tell you, if you grew up watching and just loving John Hughes movies like I did in the 80s, if you ever wondered how John came about selecting the music for these movies, Tarquin was John Hughes's music supervisor. We're talking Pretty in Pink. Some Kind of Wonderful, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Drains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby. John and Tarquin worked together to put those songs in those movies together. Now, Tarquin's done a lot of other things, too. He discovered a lot of bands while he was an A&R rep, namely the Stray Cats and the Associates and Wang Chung. He manages a lot of artists. He manages Stuart Copeland, and I forgot to even ask him about Stuart Copeland. He manages our old guest, Ranking Roger. We learn about what's really at the heart of the sort of conflict or the dynamic between Ranking Roger and Dave Wakeling and the English Beat. He also, maybe most interestingly, manages Brian Johnson of ACDC. So we talk about what really is going on there. The hearing loss, the leaving the band so suddenly, why he never talked about that. So we get to the bottom of all these things, not to mention we just talk about a ton of bands and artists from that time that Tarquin had a hand in, or knew personally, or whatever. We're really, I, I assume most of you that are listening grew up like I did, thinking that John Hughes was kind of God and his movies were the Bible, and so we learn the ins and outs of a lot of this stuff in here. I think you guys will love this conversation. I sure hope that you do. I have to thank my wife, Farah, for this one because we were talking recently and she said, with as much as you love soundtracks, why don't you reach out to somebody who works on them and get them on the show? I thought, that's a great idea. My favorite soundtrack of all time is Some Kind of Wonderful. Who did that? Tarquin Gotch did that. So I thought, well, let's see if he would come on and talk about that and everything else. And sure enough, he did. So thank you to my wife and thank you to Tarquin. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. So much to unpack here. It was overwhelming, to be honest, because everything we talked about deserved its own um, hour-long conversation. But uh, And we're going to kick it off here with one of my favorite songs from the Some Kind of Wonderful soundtrack. This is Do Anything by Pete Shelley. Tarquin called me from his home in London. So my wife had uh, mentioned to me recently that I should look for somebody to have on the, on the podcast who has worked on movie soundtracks. since so I'm a real movie soundtrack buff. And I thought, well, my favorite soundtrack of all time is Some Kind of Wonderful, the John Hughes film. Uh, Who did that? Let's go find him. And so I was looking you up and that, you know, you've got a name that it's pretty unusual. And once I realized, once I saw that name, I thought, I've seen that name several times. And so I thought, well, I'll reach out to him. I'll see if, he's be, if he would be willing to tell us how does somebody become... The music supervisor for movies, let alone you know, the most iconic 80s teen filmmaker of all time and some of the most iconic soundtracks of all time. So, how does this happen, Tarquin? How did, how did you become that guy?
1: Uh, you get very lucky, John. I was uh, touring with the band I managed at the time, The Beat, uh, we were doing gigs in California. And a very old girlfriend, not old, uh, she was young at the time, uh, (laughs) but a great girlfriend uh, invited Mm. me to come to the set. Uh, She was filming Weird Science. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, it was Kelly LeBrock, and I got chatting to the chap sitting in one of those director chairs, which turned out, of course, to be none other than John Hughes. And, And we got on like a house on fire, mainly because he was such an Anglophile.
0: Yeah when it
1: came to music and being fresh out of England, being a manager, uh, I only a few months before resigned from being head of A&R at Warner Brothers in in London. And so uh, without wishing to sound big headed, I I had my finger on the pulse of of Mm -hmm. music coming out of the UK, which of course is exactly what he was keen on. So Kenny LeBrock, um, on uh, on the set of weird science that's yeah. how i got to uh, become a music supervisor because okay. you chatting to john you know what about mm. i need this for he was in post on pretty in pink i think okay um and uh, you know what can i do for this what can i do for that and, you know, I I offered up suggestions, and one thing led to another, and there I was, the music supervisor for John Hughes. What a yeah. gift.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Now, did you have anything? Did you work on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack? Were you? Did you recommend some of those songs?
1: At the very end, he was having a hard time with A&M Records. I don't know, or perhaps A&M Records were having a hard time with him. I, I can't really speak to that. Okay. But, yes. You know, I'd like to think I I helped um, a little with it. Really?
0: Can you pinpoint a particular song that you were, uh, that you recommended that ended up on the soundtrack?
1: Um, I'm just looking at it, trying to remember that far back. And it may have been um, The Smiths. Oh, Um, really? Okay. Uh, and Echo and Bunnymen. Um, but, uh, because I've been uh, the A&R man for Echo and the Funny Men, and I really thought they were, you know, had the potential to be as big as U2. Absolutely. I, I think they were that good, um, yeah. but it's one, you know, who knows why these things, Yeah, I mean, you can wow. spend your life doing autopsies on why yeah. uh, Echo and the Funny Men weren't as big as U2 or uh, similar.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, I this is I have to I have to admit it's overwhelming talking to you, Tarquin, because every band you've ever worked with to me deserves its own like hour-long conversation. So I I could... well I
1: I agree. I mean I think yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen definitely deserve that absolutely um, because I think some of their albums were sublime, really yeah. really mad, marvelous oh, sort of spacey rock way that didn't, it didn't turn into bombastic stadium stuff. It just was, it rocked and it it, yeah. it transported you.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think Will Sargent is one of the most underrated guitarists ever. Yes. And I think he's a there genius. There Yeah. Okay. So you step in near the end of Pretty and Pink and then he brings you on for some kind of wonderful. Tell me what the music selection process is like. How do you... How do you play things for him? What? How does he decide? What's the? What? How does it work?
1: Okay, he sends you the script and you read it. And of course, this is very early on in the process, and you're amazed because the script is so sort of perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it never changes, which in Hollywood is unheard of. Usually, yeah. scripts change all the time, even during shooting. And then you can talk to him, and you can. Uh, he would call up and have endless conversations about what well, this scene is, is about this. The, the character is feeling this. He's sad, but I don't want it to be slow. I want it fast. Mm-hmm. sad, mm-hmm. Or you know, whatever the, the specifics were. And then I would go away and start sending him whatever I could find, both, new releases, I'd go to insiders in the UK music business and ask what they've got coming up and because I had been an A&R man and because I knew everybody I would be able to get instrumental mixes which Mm -hmm. now are ubiquitous but then were a a thing of rarity and I would also send 12-inch versions of uh, songs which we may already know the song but he hasn't got the 12 inch because it hasn't been put out in america right. at that point because now of course we're used to records being released worldwide instantaneously on spotify etc then it was not like that so having access to those uh, special tracks if you want to call it that instrumental 12 inch different mixes um i think he really uh, appreciated and we would then go round to his house with a rough cut of the movie and literally just needle drop tracks against scenes to see if, for instance, if he'd asked for something sad but fast, whether that echo in the men 12-inch yeah. hit that <clears throat> note or, or did, was it the associates or was it, who was it? And you kept trying, you kept trying, we'd be up all night, coffee smoking <laughs> loads of cigarettes. Yeah. probably gave you lung cancer. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, eventually you would get a, a short list, and, and either they were keepers that would stay in the film, or at least you would walk away saying, I want something like that, only a bit faster, a bit slower. Got it. A, a girl singer, you know, whatever.
0: Okay. Now there's a lot of synergy in those soundtracks between artists that appear on them and artists that you also manage. Stephen Tintin, Duffy, <laughs> oh. the English Beat.
1: Yeah. You know, that, thanks Dream for, thanks for noticing. <clears throat> thanks for noticing, John. Uh, that's, <laughs> yes. John Hughes was incredibly generous. And, you know, at the time, it felt like a two-way street in sure. that I was able to get him versions of things, again, instrumentals, unreleased material by these artists and that that made it feel special for him. Yeah. Of course, in hindsight, I realized what a generous thing that was uh, of him to do sure. to put my artists in his film. And uh, I'm forever grateful. And I hope the artists themselves are equally grateful. I, I somehow sense they they aren't, but <laughs> <laughs> some of them. <laughs> well, some of them
0: have to keep getting a little mailbox money all the time, thanks to being they in do. these iconic they, movies.
1: That's right, yeah. they do. And it certainly gave them some visibility for which many of them are very grateful. Good,
0: yes. good. Now, I got, I've always wondered, in um, Some Kind of Wonderful, Mary Stuart Masterson's character has a big Gen- general public poster on her bedroom wall. Did you, I assume you got to influence that moment?
1: Of course, well, you know, it it was just a lovely uh, adventure that we were all on. He was making these, I I mean, in my opinion, groundbreaking films. I think they truly were that he was making, he was bringing to teen movies a sensibility that had never been there before. And he wanted stuff in those films, in the background, in the costume, in the way they wore their hair, that said, that this was truly of the moment, and right. you know, a, a poster from a band that's just about to be uh, right. launched in America is exactly the sort of stuff you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, Ferris Bueller in his bedroom, I, I'll never forget. There's a Cabaret Voltaire poster in his bedroom. Did you have? Did you manage Cabaret Vol- Voltaire or have anything to do I with wish, that? I wish,
1: but no, sad, sadly not. That okay. was just, I think. Uh, somebody's um, somebody's favorite, uh, and okay. understandably,
0: got it. Okay, so speaking of the Fe- Ferris Bueller's Day Off soundtrack, there's a story that I've read. You tell about the Beatles and and uh, Twist and Shout appearing in that movie. What's that story?
1: Well, it's simply that Beatles tracks were incredibly hard to license it was an age when the big bands like zeppelin and pink floyd's kind of looked down their noses at licensing their art to commercials and 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 that spilled over into films so you were battling that you were battling the fact that this was the beatles who are the the biggest and the best uh, pop band ever and we went after this song And it's an incredibly difficult uh, part of the business um, for music supervisors when their director locks a scene, so there is nowhere else you can go. You have to get that one song,
2: uh,
1: and it's from somebody uh, notoriously difficult. So it was a very uncomfortable time, stressful time, trying to get the rights to that song. In the end. Paramount came to the party and paid the money, and we got the rights. And then in post production, John spotted that on camera there were a brass section. There were, you could see a brass section. And of course, there is no brass in that track. So Uh without Uh me knowing, without me knowing, John went. The editor added uh, a brass section uh, and only when the film came out and apple went mad understandably uh-huh. right. because one had taken a liberty with the beatles track, uh, <laughs> did, did i get to hear about it and, uh, and i was mortified but you know was, yeah. we survived and, and i think and you know and the track went back in the back in the trust, so it's yeah. not as if we did some, something that people hated, they loved it. Of
0: course, It I mean I was I think 14 at the time and so it that's when I discovered that song and grew to love the Beatles, in fact I was just thinking that was a big summer for them because I think within a couple of weeks of the release of Ferris Bueller's Day Off was also this Rodney Dangerfield movie called Back to School and he sings yes. Twist and Shout in Back to School as well. And so that's
1: ha- right.
0: having both of these you know big summer movies come out with the same song beating into these teenagers heads it uh you you know it reawakens the beatles and songs and their song to a new generation that was a that, big moment
1: that, that's right and and i think you know if the beatles have made a strategic error by being too protective yeah. of their um thinks and You know, I think a whole generation currently has grown up not hearing them because the Beatles made it very difficult for uh, films and TV and commercials to license their music, as, by the way, did Led Zeppelin and others that I mentioned previously. And I think it's a mistake because if the young people don't hear the music, they don't care. I, you know, I have people, my my kids go with the Beatles and you go, what? Um, So, uh, you know, I think we, in retrospect, while we might have taken a slight liberty, I think did them a huge favor. I think you did, too.
0: Tell me why there was no Ferris Bueller's Day Off soundtrack until just a couple of years ago.
1: John always maintained that it was because there was such diverse music. You went from, you know, um, umpah German music to uh, the Beatles to underground, you know, alternative music. Uh And that is a coherent argument. I think it could be that uh, even though we were able to get the rights to... Twist and shout for the film. We were never able to get soundtrack rights, sure. and so to put a soundtrack album out without the big set piece song in it hmm. could have been another reason why that song never, that hmm. uh, that soundtrack album never got um, uh, released, despite huge demand.
0: Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of weird. I that seems a little too precious. You know, there's plenty of other music in that, in that movie. The Flowerpot Men, the March of the that, Swivelheads, right. Yellows. That's oh right. yeah, you know. Yeah. in there that would have you know been a made it a million seller right that seems a little too precious to get caught up in that one beatles thing
1: there could have been <clears throat> contractual arguments going on behind the scenes between you know john and whoever was releasing soundtrack albums for him or the studio and whoever was releasing to, you know uh-huh. i think there's many layers to that onion and mm. there is no one simple uh, answer because i for one was you know i was terribly upset that there was no soundtrack album yeah. partly because i was on a percentage um <laughs> but no but really because i you know i was proud of the music and the selection i thought it was clever and, and brilliant and i would have you know even been happy with an ep yeah anything but, sure you know
0: yeah. So I think 16 Candles had the same fate. I think only a small EP came out from that movie. And there's, you know, it's load, loaded with music. It never made sense. That's right. Him. Yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Now, how did you then um, make the transition into becoming a producing partner with him? Because you produced Home Alone.
1: Uh, yes. Executive producer, yes. To, to be uh, precise. Okay. And. Uh, that was, you know, John was a mercurial character and he lived, uh, you know, he was not a Hollywood party guy. He was not somebody that hung out and met loads of people in, in Hollywood. He was very much a Chicago guy. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to get close to John, you went to Chicago. And I think on Home Alone, they ran into a problem. I think there was friction on the set between christopher columbus and um some of the other members of the producing team and john called me up you know because he knew me yeah um and uh, there's a level of trust when you've worked with somebody for seven years and called me up and said do you want to live in chicago <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm. and i said yes not realizing that the four films that I would in, in the end executive produce for John all shot in the middle of the winter oh, and John that's right. I'm sure you've been to Chicago in the winter yes. and you know what I'm talking about here. Yes.
0: yes that's true it didn't occur to me till just now that the all Curly Sue, Dutch um, plays Trains and Automobiles well did you executive yeah. produce that one?
1: no I was music supervisor on that one but uh, okay. it, it too shot shot in the winter though. on that one we had the nightmare, it was a warm winter and there was no snow. And we kept moving the location further north <laughs> to try and find snow. And in the end, we shot the highway scene in California with fake snow. No way. Oh, no way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, my idea of being a movie producer is sort of being on a set. There's a palm tree in the background. Yeah, yeah. I'm surrounded by gorgeous actresses and it's just, you know, a fabulous life. the reality of being wrapped up in sort of um, huge amounts of feathered down and you can't see anybody (laughs) because all you can see is their eyes because they're all wrapped up. And that's not what I imagined it would be like.
0: (laughs) That is so great. Now, you worked a lot with uh, John Candy. Tell us about
1: John. John was a delight. Um, He was uh, a man. He was a big man with big appetites and a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, incredibly professional, always on time, always knew his lines, all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, he did like to party.
0: Did he really? Oh, man. Did he have like a a drug of choice?
1: No, more alcohol, mainly. God knows. Yeah, I'm sure there was other stuff. I'm sure there was. I mean, you can't come out of Mm -hmm. that world Mm -hmm. and not have sampled all... Um, the cornucopia of drugs were, right, right. were flowing around uh, at that at that time, but the you know, the the John, of course, was John Hughes was very straight. He hardly drank. He, as I said, smoked tobacco and and drank coffee endlessly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, sadly, I think that may have been what. Led to his early demise. Uh, you right. know, it's it's a pretty lethal com- com- combination. Right. But he was very straight and, and didn't really approve of any of that sort of thing. Do you understand know I me? Mean? Sure. Not in a Puritan way, but just in a well. Why would you want to stay up drinking all night? You know, right? Um we have work to do. And uh, yeah, and of course, one night I was out with John, and uh, we stayed up all night in a bar and John Candy had to be on set, and he went straight from the bar to the to the set. Oh. Unfortunately, John Hughes was riding in a limo to the set, listening to the radio, and somebody called in to the radio station and said, you'll never guess, I've just come from a bar with John Candy. No way. Oh man So we get to the set Me and John John Candy Get to the set And the mood Is not good And busted Yeah
0: Yeah (laughs) Oh man And that was during The filming of Uncle Buck I believe If I read that right Okay Correct Crazy Did you ever um, I mean it really Seems like you hitched Your wagon Exclusively to John Hughes Were there Other movies Or other people Sort of vying for your Attention back then
1: Yes I did a couple I was of Music Supervisor for the first few episodes of The Wonder Years, which I really loved. I thought it was a great little show. But the reality was that John, you know, understandably sort of wanted focus and wanted first call and wanted all of that. that. And nobody else could really offer the same platform, the same... I mean, it was... To be John Hughes, his Music Supervisor... I didn't want to jeopardize that. Sure. And in fact, when I moved back to Chicago, the, the bad part of the deal was that I had to give up management of all the bands I was managing, oh. XTC, the Dream Academy, uh, General Public, et cetera. And, you know, I've often thought back and looked back on my life and, you know, questioned that that decision. Yeah. I mean, I, I did it because it gave me the chance to fulfill a lifelong ambition to be a hollywood movie producer hurrah yeah but it it also put me very much in in you know took me out of the music business and put me very much at at john's beck and call uh which is exactly why he did it i understand that if i was running a small company like he was i would probably do exactly the same Mm -hmm. but it did mean that when i finished with uh, working for john i couldn't just go back to my music business i I had to sort of go on yeah and i went on to to work with john candy i was working with him developing stuff and trying to get it made he was working he was developing confederate of dunces i think at the time which i was very excited about he would have been genius for that but that wasn't to be sadly he passed away before we could do anything and but it's sort of it's one of those sort of decisions you make you don't realize you're you're taking a huge fork in the road of your life and what it meant was that I had to go to Hollywood and and continue in the film and tv business I couldn't go back to the UK music business
0: well I mean um as much as that There really is no music business anymore, not to that level anymore. I mean, maybe you made the right decision because you hitched your wagon to the production side and that's still happening, you know, maybe.
1: Well, here's an interesting thing. From there, after John Candy, I went on to work for Fox Television. I I ran their in-house television department. I thought, oh, to Mm. be the guy spending the money, Mm -hmm. to be part of the corporate structure where the money is, is really uh, uh, the, the answer, but I found that corporate world so odious, frankly. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. not a lovely place. And when I moved from the uh, from the US back here to the UK, I decided to jump to the other side and hitch my wagon, as you put it, to talent. Mm. It didn't matter mm-hmm. what; it didn't matter whether it's music or writers or anything, but that I was going to be the talent guy. And to be honest, this part of my life has been a lot happier
0: thereby. Hey everybody, let me break in here for a little bit of business uh, and let you hear a couple more songs from the Some Kind of Wonderful soundtrack. Uh, First of all, we got a really, really good response to our Rupert Hine episode. And I was so glad because a lot of the feedback I got was that you guys seemed to feel about it the same way I did, which is that just great story. Every artist I threw at him... He came back with a super fascinating story that added all this color to the and depth to the people we were talking about and their music and the albums and Rupert himself. It was amazing. I'm really glad you guys liked it. I have to admit I, I would have loved just one of the, of the artists that we featured on the show to have shared or retweeted or anything like that. They didn't. Um, One thing I'll say, maybe this will work, gang, if you loved that episode as much as I did, maybe let the people know, you know? Tweet at Howard Jones or Duncan Sheik or Rush or The Fix or whatever and just say, hey, I heard Rupert Hine tell some great stories about you. On The Hustle, I loved it. Something like that, I don't know. You know how we do it, guys. We just, we're trying to get these stories in front of the fans that would care and it's so difficult, so. Anyway, whatever you can do to help. Speaking of helping, i got to call out all the people who who shared that episode. There were a lot of them, and I'm so grateful. Nigel Walters, Ken Morris, Anthony Porter, J.W. Bruford, Save Rock and Metal, DJ Bulletproof, Sonny Pooney, Jason Simons, Paul Hicks, Nathan Timothy, Jay Sabluski, Pat Francis of Rock Solid, Growing Up Rock, The Songwriting Charity, Henning Michael, Henning, I've known you for a year now, and I've never been 100% sure how to pronounce your last name. Mikel, Michael? Meikle? I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, Frederick Ingram, Carrie Carlson, our friends at Suburban Underground, Rob McIntyre, Sandro Ativo, and Susan McDonald. So thank you everybody that shared that episode and uh, seemed to love it. I loved it too. Uh, I gotta tell you guys a story. So I have been clocking for a while, a couple of years now, Holly Beth Vincent. I don't know if you guys remember who she is. She was the front woman of this great, kind of new wave, punky, garagey band in the early 80s called Holly and the Italians. Maybe her biggest claim to fame, or at least in terms of a moneymaker or a hit, was that she wrote that song, Tell That Girl to Shut Up, which was on that one Holly and the Italians album, but it was covered later in the 80s by TransVision Vamp who had kind of a hit with it. We talked about it on the Matthew Seligman uh, episode. So I became Facebook friends with her years ago in, in the hopes of eventually having her on the show. And she's a little esoteric on there. on there, and, You know, she comes on and posts a lot and then she disappears for long periods of time. And so I haven't quite picked my moment yet or anything, but recently one of our listeners, Michael Ray Pfeiffer, who's a singer by the way, we're gonna talk about his music in a later episode, He requested her recently and I thought, well, I've had her in mind for a long time. I got to make this happen. So I immediately sent her a message on Facebook. Hey, Holly, I do this podcast. I'd love it if you'd be a guest. And she said, yes. And so we scheduled a time to talk two weeks from then, which was two weeks ago. I, um, and I had to cancel because I wasn't ready to do the interview. I had a lot going on and didn't, didn't do it. So I said, look, can we push this back one week? She said, no problem. So, the day that we were going to do the interview, which was last Thursday, uh, I ping her in the morning on Facebook and say, Hey, I, are you still planning on it? I'm, I'm still open to doing it. And uh, she says, Yeah, I'll get back to you. A few minutes later, she says, I just Googled you and your show. I am not interested. Thanks anyway. And I thought, What? What did she Google? Because honestly, most. Most people we have on the show have the exact opposite. Oh, I looked you up and you've had a lot of great people on your show, and or I listened to some episodes and they turned out well, so yeah, I'd love to be on. Anyway, But she didn't do that, she heard about it and decided no. So I said, really, why, what's going on? And she said, retro is not my thing. I don't like talking about the past. And I don't have a band yet, and uh, I was like, well look, who cares? Um, she moved to Minneapolis and I guess she's trying to start over there. I'm not sure. Anyway, I was like, well, look, I, this is just our way of honoring you. It doesn't matter if you have a band or not. I just want to know how you're doing and talk about the old days and what you've been up to. And she wrote back, I don't, and I said, look, if you ever change your mind, just tell me and we would love to have you on the show. She said, I said, I don't do interviews. And then she posted on Facebook a few minutes later, I don't do interviews. So, unfortunately, we will not be having Holly Beth Vincent on the show. I was hoping we would. Maybe we would've if I hadn't had to cancel, but it did not work out. Uh, I thought you guys might find that interesting. She's a, she's a trip, apparently. Uh, so I wanna read some reviews. Uh, this is from Napa Runner, five stars, great podcast. I listen to many podcasts, and this one ranks right near the top, either Joe rog- Rogan, Or the hustle, depending on the mood. That's cool. Joe, I wouldn't mind some of his listeners, that's for sure. I'm 43 and grew up on the world-famous K-Rock in Los Angeles, a hub for many of John's guests back in the day. Thanks for the great interviews, John. Thank you, Napa Runner. Another one. This is Guitar Slinger Girl. Love this podcast. Five stars. Perfect for the music fan of the 80s who wonders, where are they now? John is a perfect host. That's really nice. Thank you asks the best questions, and gets stuff out of his guests that perhaps no one ever has before. I feel like a fly on the wall during a private conversation. Fun to hear more in-depth stuff from some people I have met or know, and artists from bands that my bands have played with in the same decade. Interesting. Thanks, John. I wonder who Guitar Slinger Girl is? I wonder if I know her or if she's in a band that we would know. That's kind of cool. All right, and then one more. This one's kind of long. Oh, this is from Mike Pfeiffer, the guy I just mentioned, who requested Holly Beth Vincent. Uh, Five stars, great podcast. Uh, John Lamoureux's podcast, The Hustle, is wonderful and a thing of beauty. Wow. Thank you, Mike. The Hustle is a treasure trove of fascinating, in-depth, and interesting interviews with musicians and bands that flirted with stardom in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. These are songwriters, musicians, bands, and songs that we've loved our whole life. John's passion for these artists on The Hustle makes you want to listen every week and over and over again. His dedicated focus on a well-produced podcast with insightful conversations about the music, the money, and what goes on behind the scenes is fascinating. This is beautiful. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the way he lets these artists know that people care about them and love their music. It's really meaningful to so many of us. Do yourself a favor and listen to any episode. It's worth your time and you'll enjoy it. Long live the hustle. Thank you, Mike. That is beautiful. I love that. I'll read one more because it's really short. Uh, This was DW8675309NE. I don't know who what that is. Uh, Other than the song reference, obviously. The best. Five stars. Thank you. John brings a depth of understanding and insight to often forgotten artists. His genuine interest in the artist gets them to open up more than any interviews that I have heard. 10 out of 10. Wow. Bless your hearts. Bless you, everybody, for everything that you do and say and listen. And I've been hearing from all these people recently who sort of found us and are connecting me with people they know who might be interesting interviews or know people that know people that I want to interview or whatever. Anyway, it's just, it's a rush every single week for Yann and I to hear from you and to get these great vibes and to be a part of your lives. Thank you so, so much for everything you do. Okay. Um, also, uh, last, thing, don't forget to go on Amazon and look for a t-shirt if you want. There's a bunch of different shirts on there. Just type in the Hustle Podcast merch or the Hustle Podcast shirt or whatever, and it'll pop up. It's there. Go get you one, okay? Thanks, everybody. Let's go back to Tarquin. Two things that I want to ask you real quick about what we just said. First of all, did you and John have a falling out ultimately, or did you just change your mind?
1: Yes. I mean, John, you never knew exactly what it was, but Uh, Sadly, you know, you just suddenly were out in the cold, and and Uh. you weren't. You know, the calls weren't returned. The long night chats weren't happening. You would try to call him. You know, it would go to answer machine as it was in those days. It's been a great sadness for me that I never could really find out. I, but he, you know what? I don't even care. It's sure. it, because it doesn't really matter. If you look at John's life, it was a pattern. Yeah. His. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I would make the argument that you can't have the brilliance of when he loved you and when he was, you know, rooting for you. The. The brightness was so blinding. Yeah. Um, let's look at the Molly Ringwald story as a, exactly. as a similar example. That's what I was just thinking. You know, and I had so much. Uh, I got to music supervise. I got to have give my acts a platform in America. I had a life in America. I got to produce movies. I got to sleep with actresses. I had <laughs> a brilliant life, and it was because of John. And yeah. if the downside of that is that the light is suddenly turned off and you're in the dark. Then so be it. It's, right. It is in in looking back. I didn't feel it at the time, but looking back, it's a fair exchange.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, he seemed like somebody who just demanded full loyalty, and when he sensed any kind of drop yes. in that, then he was done with you, or you know, he moved on. It's too bad.
1: That's right. I, I you mm. know, the reason I was given was that I flew on the Warner Brothers jet with the head of. Uh, warner films and i I, you know i'm not sure that's really the reason again there's always layers to the onion right Um, but i think that you know could he have seen that as a a lack of loyalty well maybe i don't know or was it because i was chasing money i'd been promised i don't know who
0: knows too bad um okay one other random question so famously the Theme song for The Wonder Years is Joe Cockers with a little help from my friends. Did you make that decision since you were there at the beginning or no, did somebody else? I, I,
1: to be honest, I can't really remember. Okay, okay. I, I can't remember what I did on that series. I, I seem to remember we had a number of choices and that was one of them, but I, I can't say that it's it okay. and I can't take that glory. I'd like to because it's brilliant. Sure.
0: I didn't know if you were the one making the decisions or if someone else is making them and they're sending you off to like get the rights and line it all up. Well, there's
1: definitely definitely the last part, but also one was offering up choices. Again, that they might not have access to in Los Angeles, but which I, because of my roots back in the UK, I could find them things which they perhaps hadn't heard. Okay, okay, got it. But on those shows, it's very much the you know, the showrunner who makes that call. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about some of the people that you currently manage, because one of them is Brian Johnson. And you guys guys are filming a reality series, is that right?
1: It's a series, it's a documentary series, um, and I'm very proud that the work I do with Brian has been so classy. We did uh, three series on cars, it was called Cars That Rock, on the Discovery Channel quest, the Discovery Channel over here. It hasn't all been broadcast in America, much to my dismay and sadness, because I'm very proud of that series. Uh, We do a different car each episode, and he goes into the history. He tells stories about uh, how the car started, the dreamers that came up with them. And he's a fantastic storyteller, and then he drives the current one and talks about that. Very proud of that, and then this Good. current series that I'm doing for Sky Arts is uh, on the road with Brian Johnson, where he talks to his peers in the rock business about oh. playing live music, and and we've done people like Robert Plant and Nick Mason, and oh, that uh, it's just amazing. Been, it's been an absolute joy. Yeah. We just came back from uh, doing Mick Fleetwood in Hawaii. Yeah,
0: oh, that's incredible. I
1: why wouldn't yeah.
0: that be? Aired around the world. I mean, you would think there'd be at least some well, cable channel that, that one, would want to pick the,
1: that up. The, the, the thing until there's twelve episodes before Got taking it. it to market. Okay, but there's eighteen episodes of Cars That Rock, and you know, I, I'm afraid it's part of the slightly dysfunctional corporate structure uh, of the Discovery Channel because. Yeah. You know, well, I won't bore you with the the detail, but they basically have investment centers. You know, there's one in Asia, one in Australia, one in Europe, one in North America, one in South America. And they all decide whether they're going to put money in. And and then it's kind of like the way it was with record labels. You know, when I was working at Arista, I signed Wang Chung and Mm -hmm. the Stray Cats, took them to Clive Davis, Mm -hmm. and he passed on both. Oh, you know and, what? And you're like, well, hold on a minute. I'm head of A and R. I'm signing things for the world. Yeah, but you're passing, and <laughs> that means I don't earn when they go off to another label. I mean, it it really was. It was one of the reasons why I moved to Warner's because I was promised that yeah. if I signed things, they would get a release in America. Uh, but uh, hey, you know, Gosh. that's the past. That's
0: crazy. But, Okay. Yes. Well, I want to ask you more about that stuff too, but let let me um, let's get into Brian just a little bit. So, uh, you know, famously, he leaves ACDC sort of uh, as it shocks everyone. It's the story, and let, I'll just be honest. You know that I think that a lot of people were skeptical whether the hearing issue was the real story behind the story, and um,
1: it, it, no, it was. It, it was. was. Uh, John, the hearing, I don't know if you know about hearing, but hearing doesn't sort of go down, down, down in a gradual decline. It goes down slightly, and then at any point, it can drop to deafness. Huey Newton has just gone through that and had to cancel tours because he cannot hear. He cannot hear anything. We got the early signs that the hearing was declining, 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 and he like a motherfucker to mm-hmm. stay on the road. He had injections into his ear. Oh, I mean, man. he went through hell, but the signs were there and he had a horrible decision. Do I stay on the road and possibly go completely deaf? Yeah. And I said, no, no yeah. way. You No, you, you can't do that. Right. So he came off the road and we've been uh, struggling to, with all sorts of um, you know, marvellous doctors to try and address it. I think we're making progress. I think, uh, you know, he got up on stage and was able to sing with uh, a song with Muse. Mm. Uh, He sang uh, on stage with Mick Fleetwood in in Hawaii. But these are baby steps. That's not, you know, standing in front of the loudest rock band in the world for two and a half hours that is you know a, a punishment to the
0: ears. sure, sure. Uh, i've always been really brokenhearted about it because he was they played denver maybe i think it was like four or five days before this all happened and i was gonna go and i didn't go and i'd never seen an acdc before and then i realized you know less than a week later that i've missed my one chance to do it probably yeah um now but well, let me oh um, go, go ahead, ahead
1: you know that's no that's it i i mean i i of course felt that the real solution should have been to come off the road and regroup and you know look at what could be done but yeah. you know because i i can't say i was a fan of the Axle rose solution but yeah. hey there you go
0: well i mean uh, i assume they had dates they had to fill and and uh, promoters that they needed to be loyal yeah. to, and
1: that—that's right. That's, right. That's right.
0: So let me ask you one thing, though. So when this happened, he famously didn't really. I'm every media outlet in the world wants to hear wants an interview with Brian Johnson, and no one can get to him. That, as his manager, I'm assuming was your choice. Uh, it seems like Absolutely. you could have maybe, I said- you know, dispelled some of the rumors that it wasn't. You know something nefarious was going on if he had been able to do some interviews. What was the thinking there?
1: I said, Brian, you know, just be, stay quiet. I mean, mm. don't talk about this now. This is in play. This is all sorts of, you know, things are going on. And, you know, when a divorce happens, you're upset. Yeah. And you feel raw and that's how he was feeling you mm. know w- w- and i said this is not a good time to to talk to the press yeah. you know why don't you keep your powder dry and await events and you know i i think he's already feeling much more um calm about it and you know i suppose from a manager's point of view all right let's let's i'll make the commercial argument you know it's such a great story, whatever that story is. Mm-hmm. Let me do a book. Mm. Yeah, true. <laughs> okay. Know, I'm not going to give it to Rolling Stone for nothing. Now yeah. I'd rather, you know, do a book deal with Good Harper point. Collins. But okay. that, that's my uh, commercial and cynical. Well, uh, that's answer. why you're the manager. You got to think about those that, things. That, that's right. But yeah. I, I mean, I think the real answer is that if you've just gone through a divorce. You don't want to be talking to the uh, media about yeah. it. It's okay. not a good idea.
0: Okay. That makes sense. That's fair. Um, now, you also uh, manage Ranking Roger. And I've had Ranking Roger on this show, and it was one of my proudest moments. I love him so much. Uh, what's the story with Ranking Roger? I think when we talked before, you would mentioned that they w- he was going to come to the States.
1: He is. Uh, we've just announced dates, so... Uh, um in in the us uh on the west coast late october early November um and we're hoping to do um Denver and Eastwood uh in the new year nice. uh, and this is um combination uh, in uh, co-headlining to with uh, pauline black and selector nice and we've been doing that in the uk and it's been a huge success uh and we've been in Australia, India, all around Europe. It's really, you know, the, the, it's interesting that putting these two seminal uh, two tone bands together has not doubled it, it's, you know, times four. Really? Um, it's really been great. And yeah. I think it's two things, John. It's not just that they, you know, that it's a fantastic show for the price. I think it's also that by putting the two bands together, we move them from the sort of rock venues where mm-hmm. they used to play as uh, young twenty-five-year-olds into nicer theatres, which the audience, which is not quite as old as me, but is not <laughs> quite as young as it right. used to be, I right. uh, feel much happier. So it's a combination of a Good. great show at a great price and in a venue that they really want to go to these days.
0: That's great. I saw the selector here in Denver just uh I think it was last fall and it was my first time seeing them it was great and I've seen the Eng- English Beat with Dave Wakeling loads of times to the point where no offense Dave if you're listening I don't even go anymore because he's been he comes through Denver like once or twice a year and I, it's to the I, point I, now where it's like I've I've heard this I've seen this yep. show so many times. I don't need to keep going, even though I love him. Well, that
1: I'm afraid, from a manager's point of view, I would have to say he has overturned and he's demeaned his brand a little bit. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you make yourself so available and constantly tour, mm-hmm. you and if you look at Dave's uh, bookings in America, they're going. Down into smaller venues. Yeah, you know that it, it, you don't want to be doing that. And I, I'm very proud of the fact that in the few years I've worked with uh, Roger, I've moved him from clubs to theatres. The graph is going in the right direction.
0: Good. Now, what is the what is at the root of this? <clears throat> of them being separate it doesn't make sense to me that i mean i i can kind of understand that rank that roger wants to be the beat over there and dave wants to be the beat over there over here but even when they come they don't come together when one of them plays in the other person's country so why can't they get this together
1: it's a good question i understand the question and here's the the real reason which is John, have you ever been in a partnership with someone (laughs) and it's been fabulous, you've really enjoyed working together and then it sort of gets tired and you get bored and it it becomes mundane and you want to change and you go off and you do the same sort of work but now you're on your own, you're in charge, it's your thing. And that's what's happened here. Roger went off and discovered the joy of being in charge himself yeah. and not having to do what Dave wants and not having to, you know, share the stage and being able to choose his own musicians, being able to choose the songs that he wants to sing. Uh, and I think that's a, a freedom and a joy that he doesn't want to give up. Yeah. And, the, and the trouble is, is that, you know, as soon as the two of them work together it devalues the bands that they've got. And of yeah, course you, lose, you lose the band that you've got. You can't have all of them. So, yeah. you know, the, these are two small cottage industries yeah. that, you know, are, are, are sadly mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, you know, I, of course, when I started working with them, thought, oh, I'll just get them back together and we'll all make a load of money and it'll all be fine. Yes. But you see, life, sadly, is more complex. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was my thinking, too. I mean, even if you maintain the separateness throughout most of the year in your touring, but you, you know, if Roger and Dave could do a show together in L.A. on this tour or those two could do a show in wherever, uh, Birmingham or whatever, some big thing. And, you know, everyone makes some money. We put up with each other for a couple hours and then we go about our separate ways. But it doesn't seem like that's uh, possible or maybe it is, but not as not as regularly as I feel like it should be.
1: I understand, and, you know, audiences love to see people who've worked before working together and enjoying each other's company. It's it's one of the reasons why these um, heritage acts are, are doing so well. Yeah. I've talked to Roger, and what we always end up saying is let's have a battle of the bands. Let's mm. have two beats at yeah. either end of a hall and and, <laughs> and see who who can really do it.
0: Right. Yeah, that'd be fun. Okay, I want to yeah. talk. I want to talk to you about some of the bands that you discovered and managed back in the day. Um, you mentioned the Stray Cats. You basically brought them to prominence. I mean, I know that they broke out of the UK more than they did over
1: here. They I mean, broke out of the UK. They came over and they were absolutely rocking the place. And I was very lucky to sign them. Uh, and they were one of the best live bands I, I ever worked with.
0: Jeez. I uh, I've never seen them. I've seen Brian by himself a couple of times, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's amazing that you knew. You know, but, you
1: saw them and knew. Well, to be honest, I mean, I say this. You know, when you go to a gig and it kicks your ass uh-huh. because it's so damn good, it's not hard to say that is a great band. It's yeah, just true, great. True. What's hard is to know whether the band that you're signing is ambitious, hardworking, not going to get drug addled. Yeah. You know, it, it's all that secondary stuff that you cannot know until you work with them. Yeah. So we spend a load of money, we find them and they just continue to kick off. And to be so great live that, you know, the Rolling Stones wanted them to support. Mm-hmm. You know, they got those slots that you as, a, as in the industry used to be the uh, um, open door to to uh, uh, uh each career and they got them because they were so great i mean but there's a band that you just want them to reform really and do a gig absolutely you know, yeah but yeah no, i think they are i goes. think
0: they're getting i think they announced recently they're going to get back together um i don't know what the plan is but uh, hopefully that's in progress and then um, tell me about, uh, did you manage the Thompson Twins or discover them? What's your association with no,
1: them? No, I, I inherited them at, uh, at, at Arista. They were part of the, um, they were They were there. And you know we just kept, you know, when you're an A&R man, it's not just who you sign and who you invest in. It's who you don't I'm drop. You know? uh, right, right. <laughs> Got and, it. Uh, and I, 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 I'll take pride in the fact that we just kept going with them. But I don't pretend that I signed them because I didn't.
0: Okay. And then uh, Fela Kuti. what, what you, oh. ma- I, he just seems unmanageable in the best kind of way because he so was larger than
1: life. No, no, he was. He was totally unmanageable. But God, what a great artist to have on your label. Yeah. I think it, it raises the stature of the label. Again. You know, Clive Davis is like no nah, I'm not doing that It's mm. <laughs> <You know, Weird. laughs> so un-Clive Davis <laughs> so uh, which is both a compliment to Clive and a com- com- uh, you know and the criticism yeah uh, some uh, uh, of came to the UK with his 20 wives who also danced for him and would cook in the hotel rooms and you know would just, they would just have it yeah. uh, but glorious uh, and sadly the album didn't sell and i got all sorts of nonsense about it but i don't care i'm very proud uh, of that uh, and equally proud of having wasted ten thousand dollars <laughs> of harris's money on <laughs> prince buster yes um, but, yeah
0: yeah there's a story there too right <clears throat>
1: well you know i went to jamaica as a young you know white uh, A&R, <laughs> and, and man. i just signed the beat. I tried to sign the selector. I was all over that sort of whole two-tone thing. I thought it was brilliant. And uh-huh. I, I went and I thought, well, let's go get the grandfather of it all. Yeah. And I went to uh, Kingston and he picked me up and and took me around uh, Kingston. He ran a lot of bars. He owned the jukeboxes. I think he had a lot going on with the beautiful girls in mm-hmm. the bars he he controlled that town. He was like Mr. Big, and he and he took me around, and then into the middle of Trench Town, where he said, "Do you like smoked dope?" And I went, "Yeah, of course." You know, being, uh-huh. trying to be cool, and they rolled this enormous sort of cone-like <laughs> joint that only Jamaicans can create, oh, and and um, gave it to me. And I sort of tried to be manly and take big puffs, and and then when I tried to pass it to them, they went, "No, no, that's for you." So you, you know, again. Yeah. Trying not to let the side down and, <laughs> and smoke the whole damn thing, and now I'm absolutely—you um, know—I'm out there. I'm the 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 town is spinning, right? And uh, <laughs> it's at that point he says, "Should we negotiate the contract now?" Oh goodness. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, he knew what he was doing. That's great.
1: He knew what he was doing, and he got ten grand out of me ten thousand dollars and promised me some demos. I think I got a couple. I wish I could find them now, but oh, you know, nothing that we could ever release, really. Yeah.
0: Oh boy. Now, lastly, Simple Minds. <laughs> I think you. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Did you manage them?
1: No, no. I was the A and R man at Arista. They were there you know, through a label deal. And I thought they were, again like Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, the same sort of potential. Uh, And I went up to Rockfield to tell Jim Kerr that could he please um, sing slightly clearer and could they put the vocals up in the mix? This advice was not appreciated and uh, they trashed my car. It poured everything from the kitchen into the car. And I don't know if you've ever spilt milk in (laughs) your car, but it's a disaster. Yeah. And the car was a write-off. And um, I think they also paid somebody to come round to Arista's offices and throw a pie in my face. No way. Yeah, yeah. And conveniently to have some NME photographer there, so, you know, there was a war on, and, you know, I decided as head of ANR to uh, let them go to Virgin, um, and with an override, so Virgin could um, do all the hard work, and we could make some money, Um, and the, the only satisfaction, the only good news out of this is that Keith Forsey made Jim Kerr do exactly what I suggested and gave them their biggest hit.
0: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So you were with them prior to the breakout of Breakfast Club, don't you forget about me?
1: Well, that's right. This all was happening probably at the same time, but what was so great was that, you know, it wasn't, you know, my advice wasn't stupid. It was spot on. Yeah. You know, if you want to break that American market, you've got to be able to understand the lyric. I mean, it's not not science. It's not weird science,
0: is it? Makes sense. Um, Okay. Lastly, I want to throw out a couple of songs that are on soundtracks that you did. And I wonder if there's there's a story behind any of them, okay? And then uh, just two or three. Kate Bush's This Woman's Work from She's Having a Baby, one of the most beautiful songs ever recorded. How did this happen?
1: Again, it's, uh, you read the script, you talk to John, and he identifies a mood of of what he wants. And I went back to England. I had the great good fortune to meet with Kate, to talk her through this moment in the film, the pivotal moment in in the film. And she just delivered, as you said, one of the best songs ever put in a film. And I'm so proud of that piece of work. Uh, And it was a huge... I mean, I'm very proud of the whole soundtrack, actually. And I'm just sad that the film didn't perform at the box office in the same way. And I think it had a devastating effect on John, too, because, you know, it was a very personal film. It was him moving from doing, you know, teen comedy to doing a sort of slightly more, I don't want to say truthful, because, uh, you know, I I don't know, but, and, and when that didn't, work, his reaction was to sort of go and and do much more broad family yeah. comedy.
0: Yeah, yeah. I you know, <clears throat> I still love that movie. I'm shocked that it didn't do a, better.
1: It's a great film and, you know, the trouble was it because the studio didn't really believe in it? Was it because it came out, you know, we were making that and Planes, Trains and Automobiles at the same time and Planes, Trains and Automobiles is such a great comedy mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. You know, I think the film company was just like, well, that's the hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I don't
0: know. That's too bad. Yeah. You have this hot director. All you got to do is just keep putting his product out there because people want it. And then and yet they kind yeah. of drop the ball. That's never made sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Another song. This one from Some Kind of Wonderful. Lick the Tins version of I Can't Help Falling in Love with You.
1: there's not much of a story there except that it's such an off-the-wall it is. version. It and is. Uh, for that, I just think it's brilliant. And, you know, one of the ways, as an A&R man that you, you learn, I mean, one of the ways that you can introduce new talent to the audience is to do it with a cover song. And the reason that works is because people know the song. So there's a level of familiarity and structure that they... Uh, No. And then it's easier for them to see what this group is bringing to the party. Mm -hmm. And often the first big hit for a group, like the beat, for instance, is a cover song. Mm -hmm. And then people can see what they're doing and they follow you into, you know, further into what you are doing. And I I think that's what Lick the Tins did Mm. so well with that song. Sadly, they disappeared. I don't know why. I don't even know where they are. I don't know what happened to them. I so, know. I've tried to track uh, them down. If you uh, Yeah. If you're listening, get in touch and come on the show.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I've tried to find them myself. I haven't been able to. Um, now another one. Yellow's. Oh yeah. From Ferris Bueller. Oh, unofficial theme of that movie and it's a become it's a ubiquitous song to this day I mean it's still in commercials they probably never have to work another day of their in their life because they came up with oh yeah you know
1: Um, they they are a marvelous pair and there's uh, Boris who is sort of the studio geek he's he's almost like Igor trained up in the basement in the studio and Dieter the sort of Baron, uh, Lord of the Manor, the Baron, uh, you know who, you know. Let's be blunt, is not the greatest singer in the world, (laughs) but somehow they came up with this fabulously catchy uh, tune that says so much, doesn't it? It just,
0: it really does.
1: it, It makes the comedy easy, and the fact that that song's gone on to be used uh, endlessly uh, is uh, s- uh, speaks to that and uh, when john played that uh, with the vinyl drop when we were listening and he said what about this and we were all like yep that's that, uh, that well that's that sorted uh, <laughs> it was perfect
0: it was perfect um okay last one another sort of silly song but red river rock by silicon teens for the Strands and honor reels A weird little tune but again it's so um, it fits the movie so perfectly how did how did this yeah. one happen
1: that's John Hughes pure John Hughes he played it he found it he bought it to our late night coffee cigarette and vinyl drop session and uh-huh. again it just you know and what he would do you know he would try out his ideas with there would be me and Roger Payne my marvellous uh, assistant and Bill Brown the head of post production and, and if it you know if it got a thumbs up from all of us John was like, right go do a deal for that yeah. go. <laughs> great <laughs> go, go license that and uh okay. great days
0: cool uh, okay last very last question tell me a band that we might know that you you know we've talked about bands like Echo and the men where you thought they might have been bigger or whatever is there a band that you to this day have an especially uh, special place in your heart for and it doesn't matter the size but if they're a little smaller that might be more interesting such a uh, tricky question well, and let me going okay back here's to, a, here's a second oh, i well, a different I'll tell question
1: you what. Oh, I, go ahead no I'm going to answer it. it it is the Lilac Time it's Stephen Duffy and the Lilac really? Time really
2: Hide from the postman all the night spent falling down in the night in your Town.
1: I thought i thought he was i thought that album those early lilac time albums uh, were so great yeah um, and uh, they have a nice combination of sort of pop rock and they're quite hokey things that i really like and to this day i like that sort of murky area between yeah. country and western americana folk and rock pop whatever you want to call yeah. it Anywhere in that area with great lyrics, I think is it's my favorite sort of music. Good.
0: Okay. Do you, is there a <clears throat> is there a, one of these movie moments, one of these songs that you've that you put in one of these movies that you are most proud of? And I don't I don't mean that to you know disparage anybody else. Yes, but if there's, there's like, two. Uh, okay. There's
1: "March of the Swivel Heads" by the yeah, Beach where Ferris go. is jumping over the fences. I think that's a perfect piece of music. That was me. That was my idea, and I, I'm yeah. very proud of it. And the instrumental of the Dream academys please, 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 that mm. in the uh, in the museum in Paris. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry they're both in Paris but they are. Okay. To.
0: Well, uh, Tarquin, if you can't tell, I mean, I can't. I'm, I'm realizing as we're as we, I was preparing to talk to you and to, and while talking to you, that what an ama- what an impact you had on the formation of me as a person, because those John Hughes movies are like the Bible to me. I mean, they you know to a generation of teenagers, you know this. They taught us how to think, how to talk, what to wear, what was important. How to inter- interact yeah. with each other for for team for teenagers that are trying desperately to find things to anchor themselves to. Those John Hughes movies were my anchor as a kid, and the soundtracks are what make those movies extra
1: special. And you would you did well, that? No, well, you John. You've been very kind. I think it is John Hughes's genius that he was able to write the way teenagers feel that he put on screen the, their universe. I mean, I see it as when I was growing up and, you know, was a bit of a hippie when easy rider hit the screens, I was like, Oh my God, there's somebody, there's the film. That's my world. I yeah. recognized my world wow. and I feel I felt validated and encouraged. And I think that's what John Hughes did, for the teenagers in the 80s. And yeah. and I'm very proud if my window dressing, the music, <laughs> helped make it uh, more accessible or easier to find. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it's impacted my life, uh, you know, immeasurably. So if you can't tell... Well, you haven't
1: turned out so badly, John. <laughs> no,
0: I turned out okay. And it's largely <laughs> thanks to you.
1: <laughs> if
0: you can't tell, my one thing is I w- if I could go back in time, I would have probably lived your exact life the exact bands no, no, the exact you, movies you, you, all that exact stuff
1: yeah if you could go back in time you go see acdc with Brad singing no, that's I know.
0: true oh my gosh i will <laughs> never i'll never live that down so anyway thank you so much tarquin, for right. doing this with me there you have it tarquin gotch that was incredible to me i hope that that was incredible to you i don't know how it couldn't be but i love that one Um, I might have to bring him on. Wouldn't it be great to do like a whole episode on each soundtrack? You know? I mean, he produced Home Alone. Do a a whole episode on the behind the scenes of Home Alone. You know? That would be fascinating. Not to mention all the bands he manages and all that other stuff. So many things. I mean, I used to say that I wish that I could come back to life as Cameron Crowe. But he hasn't made a good movie in so long. I might have to change my answer to Tarquin Gotch. I can't think of another human being that has ever lived that has been involved in more things that matter as deeply to me as he has. It's, uh, it's crazy. So anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Thank you Tarquin for doing this and thanks to my wife Farah, for uh, turning me on to the idea in the first place. I wanted to close it out with another song I love. She's Having a Baby by Dave Wakeling from the movie. I watched the movie last night for the first time in a while. I still, to this day, can't believe that Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth McGovern aren't actually together in real life. That's how much that movie kind of impacted me. I love that show. Um, Now, next week. The guest next week. I haven't 100% decided on what I'm going to do next week. Uh, I think... It's going to be a member of a band, a hard rock band from the 70s, that remained very obscure, but their front man went on to be a huge rock star uh, before the bottom kind of fell out. So, uh, we're gonna hear stories about that. I think that's what I'm gonna do next week. I'm not 100% sure. You guys know by now how to find us. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. Yen and I reply to almost everything we get. Uh, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. Um, I'm not really taking too many requests these days just because I've got two, three months worth of interviews already done. But you're welcome to send me anything, and if I can get to it, I will. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Mokiewicz, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner on this. We will talk to you guys next Tuesday.